You may open your inspired and preserved King James Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I hope that your soul, your individual souls, have already been blessed by Psalm 101, by 1 Chronicles chapter 28, the first 10 verses, 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 54 to 61, and 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 17. We had the words of David about the house of the Lord that he sought to build. It was his idea, but the Lord wouldn't have it and instead chose one of David's many sons named Solomon to build it. You heard Solomon's blessing upon the nation of Israel and exhortation for them to keep the ways of their fathers and the commandments of the Lord. You heard David's pious resolutions in Psalm 101, and you heard Paul's warning to ministers about what they build on the foundation that had been laid by him And that foundation is the Lord Jesus Christ, the foundation of the church. I hope that you've already been blessed and that you're sobered and excited to have considered the house of the Lord under the Old Testament and bringing it into the New Testament as well. I hope the songs that we have sung this morning are fitting for that theme. And I hope that you're stirred up and thankful that God has left a temple in the world And the temple is his local church. And we're thankful to be part of it by his gracious, sovereign pleasure. When I think upon David, and I'm very tempted to throw everything I have out of the pulpit and go back to Psalm 101. There's nothing I desire more for each of you than Psalm 101. That we would be like that. And please the Lord in such a way. And make such resolutions and then hold to them. When I think upon David, and I think upon the fact that there are many that don't appreciate church assemblies. If there was ever a man that didn't need church assemblies, it was David. Will you follow with me, please, and think about that? David didn't need you. David didn't need anyone because anyone he chose to be around was only going to pull him down. David was a man after God's own heart when he was keeping sheep by himself. David behaved himself wisely in a perfect way at home and abroad in front of all the people going in, coming out before he was king, before he had a congregation, when he was just a young man, maybe 17, maybe 20, maybe 23. And yet, and yet, there is no man that loved the house of the Lord in the Old Testament for certain than David. He loved the house of the Lord. He loved to go and praise the Lord before much people. He loved to go and praise the Lord before the great congregation. David is the one that said, One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. David said, I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. The man who needed it least loved it most. And so we're given another tip-off as to what made David special. He did not rely on his private worship. He embraced public worship because God chose under that dispensation that came after Moses to be worshipped corporately by the nation of Israel. Now Abraham and Enoch and Noah and Methuselah and others got to walk with God by themselves. They didn't need anyone and they didn't have anyone. They didn't have a congregation. Abraham would build himself an altar. Abraham was by himself the friend of God. Noah saved this earth's population by bringing his family along with him because Noah would build an altar and Noah would serve the Lord and Noah didn't need anyone else. And Noah didn't have anyone else. And neither did Abraham. We never read about Sarah worshiping God. Abraham worshiped God. But that was for that dispensation of the first 2,500 years of the world's history. It was the patriarchal dispensation. Then Moses came and brought about the nation of Israel. And so it was congregational worship. And now it's the New Testament. And the Lord has put together in small little pockets like this around the world outposts of His kingdom. And they're called the local church. And we should be thankful that we know of one and that we're part of one. Some of you have come great distances to be here to be with us. And we're thankful for each and every one of you that love God in sincerity and in truth and are committed to Psalm 101. If you're not, our doors work both ways. There's a whole lot of churches in Greenville that we would rather have you at. They're not going to preach Psalm 101 to you. So you can go and just have fun coming in and warming foam rubber. But if you want to build a church that is pleasing to the Lord and is exceeding magnificent, because the palace is not for men but for God, and it needs to be of fame and glory throughout all the earth, then let's build a church that's worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's made us worthy. We can build something that is acceptable to Him because it is made acceptable by the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrifice for us. We can bring offerings that are fully acceptable in the presence of God Himself. We are kings and priests of our God, made so by the Lord Jesus Christ. If God will help me, I will early destroy all the wicked of the land that do not love the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that many of you are with me in that matter. But I'm not angry today. I'm excited because it's time to build. We've laid a foundation of 35 years. We've got our doctrines labeled and our practices perfected. We follow the due order in every every way that we know, and we have found due order items that most don't even know exist. But so what? We need to have the Lord Jesus Christ meeting among us, and we need to have a full measure of His Spirit, and we want His glory to fill this house by His presence with us. And so I start a series of messages today 
that I hope will be of a blessing to our church. Because the Apostle Paul warned me that I need to take heed to what I build on the foundation that he laid. If you heard the last passage read, that is a ministerial warning. It applies to ministers who are builders along with the Apostle Paul, the wise master builder. He laid the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ and we better be building on Him only gold, silver, and precious stones and not wood, hay, and stubble that are going to get burned up. The fires of God's judgment don't burn up gold, silver, and precious stones. just refines them, purifies them, exposes them as being valuable. But wood, hay, and stubble, gone. Do you know how many churches are nothing but wood, hay, and stubble? They're a whole bunch of noise and a whole bunch of superficial froth. And it's all going to burn away. We can have a great church and I want us to have a great church. Not for us. It's been said already. We don't care about us. Try to find our name on our website. Try to find our name in thousands of pages of documents. We don't care about us. We care about the Lord Jesus Christ and His name. His name is above every name. It is by His name we must be saved. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The first verse. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. This is our theme text of many that could be chosen. God, through Christ and His apostles, laid out and declared to men in this world, Gentiles, like the inhabitants of Thessalonica, how they ought to walk, how they should walk the Christian walk, how they should live their lives in order to please God. Yet, though Paul had been among them, and though he handpicked their preachers, when he wrote them a letter, he said that he was exhorting them and beseeching them and begging them and pleading with them by the name of the Lord Jesus that the things they had been taught, they would do them more and more. That's our goal. Higher ground is reaching for something that we haven't yet obtained. And that is doing more and more of those things that please God. That is our goal. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 is a theme text out of many that could be chosen to get the point across that though this was a good church, though Paul started it, though Paul labored with it, and though Paul commended them, he still came back to this point of this first verse of chapter 4 and told them that he wanted them to abound. We want to be filled with doing the things that please God. We want God to be delighted in us. We do not want God to merely accept us. We don't want God to merely approve of us. We want God to be pleased with us. We want Him to be blessed. We want Him to delight in us. And we want to abound in these things 
more and more and more and more. I'm not mad, I'm excited. You say, I can't tell the difference sometimes. Well, I'm sorry about that. I really am. You have no idea how I'll grieve for the next 24 or 48 hours about that fact. But there's so much to say and so much I would like to say and I am not going to be long. Watch. I am not going to be long because my goal is simply to get you excited to make a commitment that let's build this church exceeding (laughs) magnificent for the glory of God and the profit of our souls and the defense of the faith. He can delight in us. He delighted in David and he delighted in the temple that Solomon built. You know how many chapters there are to read about that temple and its dedication? Many chapters are in your Bible, repeated in Kings, repeated in Chronicles, for you to appreciate the temple that Solomon built and the glory of the Lord that filled that house. Right. Solomon got finished with his prayer of dedication, or he's at the moment of ded- dedication, and he says that the Lord told me that he dwelt in thick darkness. Our God is a spirit. And he dwells in the thick darkness. No man has ever seen God. No man will ever see God. We will see the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the express image of God, but we will never rest our eyes upon the infinite, invisible Spirit, as the Bible refers to God. He dwells in the thick darkness. But Solomon said, I have built him a house. And when Solomon said, I have built him a house, The glory of God came down and filled that temple and the priests could not minister because of the glory of the Lord had filled the temple of Solomon. The power, the glory was emanating out of that temple so that they could not minister. They could not go in and see anything because they were blinded by the presence of God in the temple of the Lord. He killed 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. And because there was no altar big enough to put them on, the Lord just dropped fire down from heaven and sucked them up for His glory and honor. It's They're wonderful chapters. When you read those chapters, you should be excited. Amen. We've got something better. Do you remember from Haggai, just a Wednesday night, 11 days ago, I believe? Or maybe a long 18 days ago. Wow, time flies. Remember that study of Haggai where God told Zerubbabel, don't you worry about this rebuilt temple being so small. I'm going to fill this second temple with more glory than Solomon's temple had. I love this progression. And do you know what? God has chosen us for the end of the progression. We're not Jacob pouring oil over rocks and calling it Bethel, the house of God. We're not Solomon with the glory of the Lord emanating out of that temple. And we aren't Zerubbabel. The Lord Jesus Christ is walking in this room right now by His Spirit. He says He walks among His seven golden candlesticks. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, is walking around our church. And we want to give Him a house worthy of His name and worthy of His righteousness and worthy of His glory. I hope that when you read Revelation chapters 2 and 3 last evening, you saw the glory of the Christ with whom we have to do. That you saw the promised blessings that He has for overcomers. That you see the commendation and praise He gives for those that do well. But you hear the horrible words. 
Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Those are horrible words. Let it not be said of our church that he has somewhat against us. Let it not be said of your family that he has somewhat against you. Let it not be said of you that he has somewhat against you. Let's be faithful. Let's make those pious resolutions that David did and let's live up to them and let's live up to them with great zeal. This is our text. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. It's not more knowledge. It's not more information. The Apostle Paul is admitting that they already have it because you already received it from us, how you ought to walk and to please God. It's not more stuff. It's not more information or knowledge, as I've already said, and I'm repeating myself to you. It's a commitment to do more of what you already know. And it's a choice that each of us makes individually. Then the heads of every family make it for their family, and we make it as a church. The Lord's convicted me that it's time for us to make it as a church because the 35 years is past and forgotten. Thank you, Lord, for your blessings of 35 years, but we want to build something better for you. You took us through the Red Sea four different times, and we don't need any of those crossings anymore. We are thankful for them, but we want to reach higher ground. We want to dance on your high places. We want you to pick a high place for us. God did not like high place worship in Israel because it was a practice of the pagan Canaanites. But he picked one high place. It was called Mount Moriah, where Solomon built his temple. Mount Moriah is where the angel of the Lord stood with a sword drawn over Jerusalem and 70,000 men dropped from a plague. And that angel sheathed his sword and David knew that that was the spot for the altar of the Lord to be built and his son Solomon built according to the pattern that God gave. Do you know the blueprints came from David's hand? God gave David the blueprints for the temple of the Lord and Solomon built it. David paid for it. David designed it. And David is the one that had all the zeal for it. Solomon just put the building blocks together. Oh, let's build the Lord something. The goal of this sermon series is perfecting our church by God's inspired goals for churches and our personal growth individually that make up a church. This verse that I've read to you three times now is our theme. Abounding more and more in godliness. By God's grace, we want to identify the targets or traits that the Bible teaches us are true of the best churches and of the best Christians, and we want to pursue them. Those best traits and targets. We must hate the status quo. We must hate being normal. We must hate average performance. Routine religion, a form of godliness without the power. And most of all, we need to hate having a good church instead of a great church. We should hate it. David hated it. God was being worshipped in a tabernacle that he had proved of for 500 years. Did that make David content? Did David say, well, it's been done that way for 500 years. That's as good as it gets. That little blue tent over there with the priest wandering around inside and it's blowing in the breeze, and a strong wind comes along and blows it down, and they have to set it up again. It's been that way for 500 years. David didn't accept that. David sat in his permanent fixed wooden house and said, I will build a house for the Lord. 
And we want to do that for the Lord. We don't want to accept what's been done by others. I don't care what others have done. I don't care what kind of churches they've had. And I don't want you to care. We want to care what the Lord Jesus Christ would have. What would He delight in? What would please Him? It's what we want to give Him. Lord, help us. You should not want to be a good Christian. Anything less than the best is losing. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24-27 through 27 tell us that they which run in a race run all, but one gets the prize. Why did Paul say that? Isn't that kind of rough on Christians? Telling them that everybody's in the race, but only one gets the prize? Do you know what the rest of the people are? Losers. If you don't win the race, you're a loser. That's what Paul is saying. You're a loser. And we're doing it for the Lord's sake. You say, well, how can we all be winners? Ah, that's just how good God is to us. We can all be winners in this assembly. And our church can be a winning church. We don't care about being measured by the rest of the world. They're going to measure us by things we don't care about. They're going to measure us by wood, hay, and stubble. And we want to measure ourselves by gold, silver, and precious stones. We want to measure ourselves by how much glory can we give the Lord Jesus Christ. You can trust and count on this, that there are some sermons that will be entitled Christ-centricity that are coming. And we will detail how we can exalt the Lord Jesus Christ in our church. I hope that we have so far already. He is walking around this candlestick right now, and He's got this star in His right hand, and I'm trusting that we're going to honor and glorify Him by everything we're saying, doing, and thinking. One wins the prize, and that's what we want to be for the Lord. We want to give a church to Jesus Christ that is exceeding magnificent, because He is worthy. Luke 19, please. Luke chapter 19 for the parable of the pounds. Not the British pounds, but uh, it did come, our Bible did come to us through England, and it is referring to money. Pounds sterling are what they're called over there across the pond. And so we have the parable of the pounds. Luke chapter 19. I can't read you the whole thing. It would take too much time. So we'll read at verse 20. The Lord had given some pounds. He had given five and so forth. Verse 20. Here's the man that didn't do anything with the pound that God gave him. And another came saying, Lord, behold... Here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And he saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury? And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it to him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. For I say unto you, that unto every one which hath shall be given, and from him that hath not, even that hath, even that he hath, shall be taken away from him. But those mine enemies which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither, and slay them before me. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you love them. I hope you love them in their entirety. This is the Jesus of the Bible. 
This is the Jesus that we worship here. The Lord has given us pounds. It is a parable. He has invested in us. He has given us His grace. What are we going to do with His grace? You say, well, the Lord's so hard, He scares me. Well, Jesus is going to judge you out of your own mouth for even thinking something so stupid. If He's so hard, and He judges strictly, and He expects a good return, then by all means you should give Him that return. That's how He's reasoning here. He's an austere man. He reaps what He didn't sow. That means He gives us grace, and He expects us to multiply that grace. He expects us to exploit that grace and to bear fruit. He wants fruit for His investment of grace. And we can give Him that fruit. He's given us the grace. He's given us the strength. We can do it. We want to do it. This is the parable of the pounds. God and Jesus Christ are great kings deserving our best by definition of the offices they hold as Creator and Lord of heaven and earth. You know, we love the story of David and his desire to build God a house and the pains he took to prepare for it before Solomon actually assembled it. The love and efforts that David had for God's house should be the goal for our own love and efforts for this church. Gold, timbers, and stones were only for the Old Testament. We are living stones that need to be fully polished. First Peter chapter 2 tells us that the church of the New Testament is built with living stones. You are a living stone in the temple of God. God inhabits the temple called the church. Ephesians chapter 2, 21 and 22. You're a living stone. Let's make sure that you're polished and that you fit in well, and that the superstructure that is raised together by all these individual stones is to the glory of God, and that Jesus Christ is glorified by all that takes place in this living organism called the temple and house of the Lord. Every joint and part of a church should be contributing to the glory of Jesus Christ by loving Him, by personal holiness, by brotherly love, and by service to one another and to the church. We just celebrated 35 years as a church on June 7th. And though we are very thankful, we must press ahead. We marked four crossings of the Red Sea for large salvations and deliverances the Lord brought us through over the last 35 years in the way of doctrine and practice. We praise God for His mercy in doctrine and practice and the refined goals of holiness and Christ's glory that He's taught us in those 35 years. But there are things far more important than having our doctrines properly labeled and put in good order. We cannot become content. We cannot become complacent, lethargic, or slothful due to past blessings and successes. It is human nature. It is human nature to relax in jobs, marriage, That's why it's called first love. Because after two people get married, the very extreme efforts that they put forward to win their spouse, they no longer put forward. Because it is human nature to relax in jobs. You know, you work very hard to get a job. Your first month on the job, you outworked anyone else there. Then it becomes routine and you lose some of that zeal. It's part of human nature. But we're not in this room today because of human nature. We're in this room today because of the divine nature. 
and He's given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, and we can escape the corruption that is in the world through the lust of our flesh, and we can embrace the divine nature. His divine power has given us all things that we need. Lord, help us. We don't want to relax. We have the divine nature for greater zeal than we've ever had before. My job as a watchman is to warn you to build on a rock for the coming storm. If we do what I'm laying before you, it pleases God. That's enough for me. It will benefit us spiritually by being in a church that matches the pattern of the New Testament. That's a blessing. You will be ready to meet the Lord Jesus Christ at His coming. That's another blessing. This is win, win, win if we do this and we raise a house to the glory of God. Do we have a house that is that is a good church? As far as we know, yes, we do. We're, we're thankful for that. But we want to give the Lord something better. We need Paul's attitude in the matter. So let's turn over to Philippians chapter 3. It's been read to you many times. It's been preached to you quite a few times. But let's go there again. Philippians chapter 3. Paul chose, he clearly chose, to forget his past accomplishments in order to finish his race. Now I've already appealed to one place where he described racing and running, and that was 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, that says, they which run in a race run all. There's a whole bunch of participants. There could be 20, there could be 5,000, there could be... 50,000 down in Charleston when they run over the big bridge. Did they get up to 50,000? Or am I thinking the uh, the Peachtree 5K down there on Peachtree Street in Atlanta? I mean, huge numbers. But you know what? There's only one winner. And so Paul said that there. And Paul is going to say something similar here by forgetting what we have done so far in our Christian race as a church. You've heard it many times. I'm going there again to make sure you understand what we're doing. Though the Apostle Paul had the most illustrious life that we can read about in the New Testament, he labored more abundantly than they all, yet he himself chose to forget those abundant labors, saying that he needed to finish his race well. We want to finish our race well. Paul said, I have not yet apprehended that for which I was apprehended. Jesus Christ got a hold of me on the road to Damascus. He converted me and changed me, and I have not yet fulfilled everything that I can for Him. We want to be like that. So we start at verse 12. Not as though I had already attained. In the verses leading up to verse 12, He has described the fact that He has counted all of His successes in the Jews' religion as dung. And He gave all of that past life of His up. Not as though I had already attained. Either were already perfect. He hasn't achieved yet. But I follow after. If that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. I want to achieve what Jesus Christ saved me to achieve. I want to meet the goals that He had for my life of what I could do if I would use the grace that He bestowed upon me. Verse 13, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, 
forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I do not care how I have run my race so far. This is Paul speaking. This is not some carnal Christian. This is the greatest apostle. This is the apostle of the Gentiles. I forget those things which are behind. I don't care how well I ran my first three laps. I don't care that at the three lap point when the bell, when the bell is rung for the final lap, that I am way out in front of everyone. Because he knew that. That's what he said in 1 Corinthians 15.10, I labored more abundantly than they all. He was way ahead at the end of three laps. But he said, I don't, I forget all that behind me and I press toward that mark that I can apprehend that for which Jesus Christ apprehended me. I count not myself to have apprehended the goal yet. So I keep pressing. He keeps running as hard as he can. He doesn't back off and take it easy. He's not content with leading after three laps. He wants to finish. And so the apostle gives us a great example of forgetting past accomplishments to strive for more. Now that's down through verse 14. He is going to then take his example and say it applies to all of us. Verse 15. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, mature, real Christians, be thus minded. We should all think the same way. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you, because it's not good enough yet. If you, if you have a mind about being a Christian different than what Paul just described, you don't have the right mindset and God's going to have to show you. Verse 16, Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. Let's copy the Apostle Paul is what he's saying we ought to do. This is an interpretational error if you think forgetting the things which are behind were his sins. It's an interpretational error if you think it's his Jewish legalism. That was already covered in the previous ten verses. He's talking about his accomplishments as a Christian that he hasn't fully apprehended yet the great things that Jesus Christ had designed him for. He said the grace of God that was bestowed on us was not bestowed in vain. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 1. The elders had a good report. We read in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 2, but those elders didn't have a good report by being content with some little measure of success. They kept on and went after larger measures of success. Moses had 80 years of success after he left Pharaoh's household. Brethren, what about your growth? Your individual growth? Your individual love of Christ right now? He's walking around this church. He knows who is the most spiritually minded in this assembly and who's the least. He knows all that. And you're going to give an account for it. He is going to ask you for the investment of grace that He gave you, and He's going to look for a return. Every single one of you. And so we're here as a church to help each other and encourage each other to give the Lord the return and the grace He's invested in us worthy of His name and worthy of His grace. What is your ambition? Is your ambition like Paul's? Or are you retiring from the Christian life? We used to call it retiring on the job. You know, you're just going to go through the motions until you breathe your last breath and disappear? Would you just hurry up? 
so that we can thin the church down to those that care. We don't want to retire on the job. Did the Apostle Paul sound like he was going to retire on the job? Not at all. Let's not be like that. Let's press forward for the prize of the high calling of God that is in Christ Jesus. We have a race to run, and we have a great cloud of witnesses watching us. You should want to be reminded of ratcheting up your performance, because each of us is going to soon meet the Lord. We're going to soon meet the Lord, so we should want the encouragement of coming into His house today and being encouraged to ratchet it up. You can go back to Psalm 101. I don't care what you use by the grace of God to lay hold of today and take home and say, I want to live by those eight verses. I understood the division the pastor made about praise, about personal conduct, about persons, and about protecting the house of the Lord. I love that division. I'm going to live that way the rest of my life. Then you can be like David. Or you can read about the house of the Lord. You can look at 1 Thessalonians 4.1. You can think about Paul right here in Philippians chapter 3. But we want to ratchet up our performance. The Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1 in our recent studying that he said, as long as I am alive and remain in this tabernacle, I am going to stir your pure minds up by way of remembrance. He uses four verses, chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, to say in several different ways, as long as I'm alive, I am going to be stirring you up even though you are already established in the present truth. So if you're thinking, what is Jonathan beating on this morning? What was Peter beating on in 2 Peter chapter 1 when Peter said, you are already established in the present truth? Why was Peter pressing them? Because it doesn't matter if you're established. Get unestablished and get violent. The Bible says that the violent take the kingdom of heaven by force. We want to take the kingdom of heaven. Lord, help us to do that. If you are not convicted to grow in grace, you should forget any church, but especially this one, because you don't fit here. You don't belong here. We don't want you here. If you don't want to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Men, I hope that you remember a men's meeting. It's probably been somewhere between a year and two years ago now, maybe even longer, in which I talked about onesies. Remember, I I just mentioned the simple little concept of onesies. You know, if you're reading your Bible four minutes a day, how about giving the Lord a onesie and reading it five minutes a day? If you're giving the Lord 10% and you think you're a real big giver, then why don't you give the Lord 11%? Show the Lord a onesie. Do you think David tithed to raise a thousand thousand talents of silver? David prepared with all his might. He was more like R.G. Letourneau. In each part of your life, can you give the Lord a onesie? That's pretty easy, isn't it? I'm not an austere man. I think it stinks, but you can give the Lord a onesie. Can't we give him a little bit better? Now, if you give him a onesie in a whole bunch of different parts of your life, that might amount to something. But let's give the Lord the best that we can. And let's do it as a church. Let's let's encourage each other and provoke each other that we would abound more and more in the things that please God. One of the favorite studies that I've ever participated in with you in this church, one of them, was back in December of 2011, four years ago in a slide presentation on a Wednesday evening called, What is a Church? 
because a church is a pretty great thing. And when we think of all the terms that the Bible uses to describe it, it should encourage us. I'm going to quickly run through a list of things that I went over in detail that night. What is a church? It's God's temple. Spirit's house. Christ's body. The potentate's property. That's why it's called the church of God. It's owned by God. The potentate's property. Scripture repository. Treasure chest. Christ's prophecy. Angelic wonder. Heavenly connection. Royal connection. Kings and priests unto God. Truth defender. Salvation source. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Worship center. Reality check. God's seminary. Small claims court. Welfare agency. Competent counselors. Synergistic support. Prayer band. Replacement family. Best friends. Heaven's executioner. Living organism. Freedom park. Support group, Lord's Supper, Praise Band, United Nations, Secret Society, Mega Church, Christ Bride, and Hidden Wisdom. Wow! Lord, thank you. That's what a church is. Now, a year ago, I preached to you what is a great church. And you can trust me that out of these things, you're going to be hearing some of them again. Here's another list. What makes a church great? It is Christ-centric. Jesus Christ is central to all that it does. First love is hot. It has a regenerated membership and shows it. It is spirit-filled. It is doctrinally dogmatic. There's an emphasis on preaching. Do order details. Perilous times response. It's a praying group of people. It's filled with brotherly love. It's forgiving. It's peaceful. It's unified. It is self-correcting. It practices discipline. It is holy. It has reverent worship. It's filled with zeal. Attendance is practiced. It's every, every joint contributes. It is filled with thanksgiving. It is for evangelism. It follows civil obedience. It practices Christian liberty. It is passionate, joyful, hospitable, and entertaining. It shows welfare. It has a great work ethic. It's liberal. It supports pastors. And it has many ancient landmarks. That's a great church. We'll come back to some of those things in the days to come. Did you read last night in Revelation chapter 2? And let's turn there right now. Revelation chapter 2, just a couple more minutes. Revelation chapter 2. How the Lord Jesus Christ listed nine things, yet He had somewhat against them. The church at Ephesus, one of Paul's churches. A church that we will spend some time on in the second assembly because of the things that were said about it. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 begins with the church of Ephesus. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. Five commendations. And hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Four more commendations. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, 
or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. And then he goes on and commends them again. But he had somewhat against them. We don't want somewhat against us. Lord, help us. Our goal is Samuel, not Samson. Our goal is David, not Solomon. Our goal is Job, not Jehoshaphat. Remember the divine rule, brethren. To whom much is given, much shall be required. And the Lord has shown us most much, and He will require much from us. Decisional salvation that some of us were taught is a great hindrance to us appreciating what the Bible wants us to do as a church. Decisional salvation is a distracting heresy by reducing the importance of discipleship and growth in grace. With eternal life guaranteed by your momentary decision of inviting Jesus into your heart, the next thing in life you're supposed to do is go out and reproduce it by getting someone else to invite Jesus into their heart. Instead of growing in grace and discipleship, there isn't a word in the Bible in it from Romans through the epistles about doing what they say is the most important thing to be done. Because what it says in the epistles is living out the life of godliness as a spouse in marriage, as a parent in a family, as a child in a family, as a master on the job, as an employee on the job, as a citizen of a nation, as a neighbor, and all those lists of duties, the New Testament epistles are not do not shirk the, the pressing that duty upon us, but they don't talk about reproducing some little decision of free will Baptists. Since godliness in either knowledge or practice is irrelevant to Arminians, there is little emphasis on it because it's all on the Great Commission instead of the greatness of godliness and what the Lord wants from our lives. We understand conversion as a lifelong process of conforming more and more to Jesus Christ's image. The questions, some of the questions that we ask people joining our church include these things that I'm preaching about right now. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? And are you willing to spend the rest of your life seeking, serving, and obeying Him zealously? Will you keep the unity of the Spirit by being peacemakers and rejecting bitterness and strife? Will you faithfully assemble with us and strive to perfect this church for the greater glory of God? Will you walk close to God and keep a holy and spiritual life to be a spiritual asset to the church? Will you remember the church is where you love and serve? It is not where you get loved and served. The church is a band of believers with the Holy Spirit's presence for ordained societal spiritual growth that God has chosen. Two are better than one. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. And a group of people that come together in mutual love of the Lord Jesus Christ and an intent to practice godliness is powerful indeed. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So said our Lord Jesus Christ. David set the goal of perfection for himself and his companions As you saw from Psalm 101, we want to set our goal high like that. Our goal is to be more excited by the potential prize than to be threatened by the warning and judgment, though there is always warning and judgment. If we're going to live foolishly when we meet the Lord, after we've heard so much, after we've thought upon David so much, we've thought upon Solomon, we've heard the words of Paul, we've seen the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will meet and give an account 
for all those things. Yet let us be excited instead. Let us be like David who wanted to do something extra for the Lord, something special for the Lord. We can do that, and it starts with our own personal hearts and lives with that first couple of verses there in Psalm 101. I will behave myself in a perfect way. I'll behave myself wisely in a perfect way. I will walk in my house with a perfect heart. We start with ourselves and with every stone in this building. See, the Lord looks at us as a compacted together stone building with each of us being living stones. We can please Him by every one of us taking care and attention of the stone that we are in the house of God. We can't call for timbers from Tyre. David could do that. David could text Hiram, king of Tyre, and say, listen, I need the best wood there is in the world. Will you float it down the Mediterranean and send me guys to haul it over land to build the temple in Jerusalem? Sure he Hiram was ever a lover of David. It's amazing how many pagans loved David. They loved him, but if they didn't swear by his God, he had no time for them. When Ittai the Gittite with 600 Gittites, that is from, those are high school graduates with Goliath. Do you understand that? When the Bible says that David had 600 Gittites, that means they were from the city of Gath. That is the city that Goliath was from. These guys played football with Goliath at Gath High School. Why did 600 of them swear allegiance to David? Because they had never met anyone like him in their lives. It should give you goosebumps just hearing about it. It gives me goosebumps just telling you about it. Lord, help us. Let's take Psalm 101 and embrace it. Let's take 1 Thessalonians 4.1 and embrace it. And let's abound more and more in those things that please God.